Our scripture that was read came from Matthew's Gospel, the 14th chapter and the 22nd through to the 33rd verses. And I want to just lift up the 25th verse for a moment. And it reads, And in the fourth watch of the night, he, being Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. In addition to serving as the pastor of this great church, I have weekly sermons to prepare. I also serve, as many of you know, as a chaplain at the medical center here in New York during the week, and I also have to prepare lectures for classes that I teach at the university. I have pastoral calls to make to our members from time to time, and I even have to prepare lessons for our weekly Bible studies. And of course, in addition to all of this, I have a family that also needs my attention. Now, do not get me wrong or misunderstand me. I'm telling you this, not out of complaint, but because when I do stop to look at everything that I have going on in my life and all of my multiple obligations, sometimes I wonder if all the stuff that I'm doing is due to what God wants me to do or am I doing all the things that I do because I believe I can handle it. Quoting the late Ravi Zacharias, he says, if our life has gone awry, it is never or it is not at the place where we crossed some line that we shouldn't have crossed. No, it is because we have refused to draw the lines we crossed before then. In other words, you did not establish the proper boundaries that you should have when you had the chance in your life to do so. Boundaries in our lives are very important. They form the basis for how we will be able to manage ourselves and others. And when we do not have the right boundaries in place, or if we have no boundaries at all, then we can literally fall into deep water. So for this morning's message, I'd like to talk to you about the boundaries in our lives and cultivating a heart of faith in Jesus Christ. Where does faith begin in your life? How do you know when you are operating in faith or simply doing what you think is good for you to do? How do you even know the difference? Therefore, in the context of this great passage, I have titled this sermon quite simply, The Heart of Faith. The Heart of Faith. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful and thankful now for this preaching time. Lord, we have offered unto you our worship. We've sang songs and we have read scriptures and we have even acknowledged those who are meaningful in our congregation. We thank you, Father, for the witness of those all around the world who are tuning in even right now to this message. Lord, my prayer is simple. I do not want to waste their time. So I need your Holy Spirit presence to come and descend now upon this preacher. 
Lord, they did not come to hear me. They came to hear you. And Lord, even as I preach this message, oh God, take it where it needs to go. For heaven knows, Lord, I too myself need a word. So speak, Lord, for all of your children are listening. Speak, Lord. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before I get to the heart of the text, let me remind you that the Bible speaks to us in three ways. I've often taught that the Bible speaks to us literally, symbolically, and spiritually. By speaking to us literally, it means that the stories that you read in the Bible, they actually did happen. That's the literal interpretation of the text. Symbolically, it means that God uses images and sometimes symbols and things in the Bible to, to, to point to or to indicate something else. And from a spiritual perspective, it means that there is a message that is tied into the stories, the literal stories, with all the symbolism. There is a spiritual significance and meaning that is extracted out of the text. So every time we read the Bible, it's speaking to us literally, symbolically, and spiritually. In our text, it tells us that Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and he told them to go to the other side after he had dismissed the crowd. We're further told that when he had dismissed the crowd, he then went up to the mountain, the text tells us, to pray himself. And it seems that he was praying there for a very long time. How do we know this? Because the text tells us that while he was there praying, the boat that the disciples had gone in had traveled now a considerable distance on the water. It means that a lot of time has now passed from the time Jesus told them to go into the boat. A long time had passed and they are now out, way out into the ocean. It is now telling us, the text tells us, that they did not see Jesus again until the dawn. Now, while the disciples were on the lake, the text tells us, they were having trouble moving forward. They were literally stuck because the waves and the seas and the wind was buffeting against the boat and they were struggling. And here, what we literally need to understand is that while these disciples were in the boat, they were literally experiencing resistance to them moving forward to the other side. Something was preventing them from carrying out the mandate of Christ. They needed to get to the other side, but there was much resistance while they were all in the boat. The reason why this is important is because symbolically, what you need to understand from a biblical perspective is that seas and waters usually represent evil in the Bible. I don't have time to go into all of the places where you can see that, but what you need to know is that back in that period, you need to know they were an agrarian society. They depended on farming. They depended on the land. And every time rain or the seas would rise or water would come in, it would destroy their crops and they would not have a good harvest. So going all the way back to Abraham up until then, you need to understand that the people understood the symbolism of oceans and waters in the text. It often represents something that will cause you to not get your harvest or something that will prevent you from getting to the other side. And so because the culture was chiefly agrarian, right, whenever you read in the text about water, you need to see it in the context of evil needing to be addressed. Case in point, when you look in the book of Genesis, the first chapter, 6 through 9, here's what it says. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. 
Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. Stay with me. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, here it is, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together on one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Therefore, from the beginning, God created a boundary between the sea and the land. He was protecting the people of the land from the evil of the sea. This is how you understand the book of Genesis from a spiritual perspective with the symbolism of the text. So, so as we can see, the wind and the waves were buffeting the boat. It was preventing the boat from getting to the other side. It was symbolic of an evil resistance that wanted to keep the disciples from getting to the other side. And as the disciples struggled against the waves, they looked out and they saw Jesus walking on the lake. Now we know that it is dawn. So the disciples who were a considerable way off from the shore was probably very tired and stressed. So looking out and seeing someone Walking towards them on the lake was probably a very terrifying sight. The Bible tells us they screamed out, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. They shouted out because they were afraid and they cried out in fear. But watch what happens next. Jesus immediately says to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. There are two very reassuring things that can happen whenever anyone is dealing with a frightful situation. The first is the reassurance that someone's presence is with you, that you are not by yourself and that you are not alone. The next thing you can see is that you need to hear the words, do not be afraid. It is a word of encouragement. It is a word of assurance that whoever is with you has authority enough to tell you there is nothing to fear. And as I said to you before, the waters and the seas represented evil. So the mere fact that Jesus was walking on the water meant that he had all power and all authority over the evil. When Jesus walked on water, he was simply saying to everyone who was reading the text and everyone who would understand the symbolism says that, listen, I have power and I have authority to trample on every evil and I have authority to cause the seas, the winds, the evils in your life to stop. The question is, when you are up against frightful situations, when you are up against something that is bringing fear into your life. Are you hearing Jesus say to you, do not be afraid. It is I. I am with you. Do not be afraid. It is I. Peter then says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, Jesus said, why did you doubt? This is the episode that I want to spend some time on in this message. I have, and I'm sure you have too, listened to quite a few sermons on this text that basically goes like this. They command Peter and say Peter is such a great person for stepping out of the boat on faith and walking on water. The problem is, as it is usually put in many sermons, is that while walking on water, he took his eyes off Jesus and his faith 
falters. But Jesus is there to save him. So the sermons conclude, be courageous. Get out of the boat in your lives, but keep your focus on Jesus. Okay, that's good message, and I think it's a good sermon, and I, I, I don't discount preachers for preaching that, but I, I think I want you to see something that I think sermons of that nature miss. There is something subtle in this text that I think we all miss, and, and here's where I want to start. When they get back in the boat, the text tells us, when, when Jesus and Peter get back in the boat, none of the disciples congratulated Peter for doing so well and wishing him better luck next time. Personally, I think we give Thomas a very bad rap, calling him Doubting Thomas, but I believe that honor and distinction really should be Peter's. The real hero in the story is Jesus, whom the disciples worship for the first time as the Son of God in this text. You see, the problem in the text is that the disciples were struggling against the waves. They were struggling against the wind, and it could have caused them to drown. But Jesus was on his way to them. Now, now the disciples, even as fearful as they were, Jesus told them that it was him and that they needed to take courage. But this was not enough for Peter. I want you to see where I'm going in the text. Peter did not believe Jesus, which is why he asked, Lord, if it is you, bid me come to you on the water. Jesus already told him, fear not, it is I. The disciples were in the boat. They were struggling. They couldn't get out. Jesus comes walking on the water. He says, do not be afraid. It is I. It is me, Jesus. Don't worry. Peter was not satisfied. Peter says, Lord, if it is you, bid me come on the water. Bid me come on the water. What I want you to understand, my brothers and my sisters, is that Peter was not exercising great faith. When Peter says, if it is you, Peter was actually joining the company of Satan and the high priest and even those mockers and the ones dying on the cross, all who put the challenge to Jesus by saying, if it is you, turn these stones to bread. If it is you, if it is you, Jesus, come down from the cross. Save yourself and us. If it is you, Peter, just like all the other mockers, just like all the scorners, were challenging Jesus' identity. If it is you, Peter might as well have said, Jesus, if it is you, turn this water into lemonade. He did the same thing that Satan did. He did the same thing that the high priest did. He did the same thing that the thief on the cross did. If it is you, Jesus, bid me come to you on the water. This is not a good thing. Peter was operating in the fashion of this evil and adulterous generation that is seeking for a sign of the Messiah. Jesus then simply said to him, come. And Peter proceeds to abandon the disciples in the boat. Now, as I said before, the Bible speaks to us literally, symbolically, and spiritually. Symbolically, the boat represents safety or a place of refuge in the text. It is also a metaphor for Christianity and the church. For example, Noah's Ark is a form of the church, which with its one door is the only way to get in to salvation and to be saved from the flood. So Peter stepping out of the boat was an indication of him leaving his responsibility. Now to be fair, he did walk on water, which was a supernatural act that demanded great faith. But notice that as Peter was walking on the water, the winds and the waves were still buffeting 
the boat, meaning the faith of Peter, the faith that he was exercising, his great faith walking on water did absolutely nothing to solve the problem that the disciples were facing. While Peter was exercising great faith walking on water, the disciples were still struggling in the boat. Peter's faith was not helping his brothers and sisters. Peter stepped out of the boat. Peter abandoned his responsibilities. Peter left the church. This was Peter being Peter and acting on his own selfish ambition. And because he did that, the text tells us he looked around and he saw the wind and he saw the storm. And like every person who leaves the safety and the sanctity of what God has instituted for them, they, like you and everyone else, begins to sink. Peter stepped out on his own and Peter begins to sink. This brings me to the first point of cultivating a heart of faith. If, and I want you to hear me, church, number one, if you are determined to go your own way and to do things in your own strength, God will second your motion. If you decide that you are going to step out and do something that is not ordained of God, God is going to give you all the freedom to do it. Why? Because of free will. This is the predicament that Peter found himself in that was brought on by his own intention. Did Jesus, here's the question, did Jesus ask Peter to come to him? No. Did Jesus want Peter to walk on water? No. Peter wanted to go to the Lord and to get to the Lord, faith to walk on water was what he was going after. Jesus, I'm seeing you walk on water. And you know what, Jesus? What you do, I can do too. I, I can be like the most high. Haven't you heard those words from Satan himself? Before Satan was kicked out of heaven, I can be like the most high. I can, I can walk on water like Jesus. And to preface the, the doubt, Peter asked, if it is you. If it is you. In other words, I'm not quite sure, but if it is you, I want to be like, I want to do what you do, Jesus, because I can be like God. So when you feel you can be like God, you step out of the boat of your security. And I will tell you, my brothers and my sisters, I don't know who this is for. If you are sinking, get back in the boat. Get back in the boat. Peter is petitioning the Lord to walk on water this was really all about Peter. The situations we find ourselves in is not because God told us to do it, but because we wanted to. There are times in my life when I wonder if I'm struggling because God is punishing me for something that I did or did not do. But is it possible that I am where I am in my life, struggling where I am struggling, and you are struggling where you are struggling because you have chosen to get out of God's boat and to go your own way. I began this sermon by saying I've got all these things going on, preaching at the church, teaching in Bible study, teaching at the university, being a chaplain at a hospital, doing all the things that I'm doing, and a lot of it does take a lot of my time, but is it all for God's will? And if I don't know for certain if it is God's will, and if I am tied to God's will, then I'm telling you, my brothers and my sisters, I am telling you that you will begin to sink. Peter is in some narcissistic dream trying to be God and to do God's job. The second point is, 
as strong as you may be as a Christian, you have no power or authority to change any circumstances separate and apart from Jesus. The Bible tells us, then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. As I stated before, when Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, the wind and the waves continued. And because he took his eyes off Jesus and let fear and doubt enter his heart, when he saw the waves, he began to sink. Sinking in this instance means that Peter was now powerless to help himself. Peter had put himself in a predicament and in a situation where his life was at risk and he was powerless to help himself. He was in danger of drowning and his predicament was now much worse than when he was in the security of the boat. Where he found himself now was a much dire situation than when he had the security of the boat. If Peter had stayed in the boat, he would have been just as safe as the disciples. But by stepping out on his one-man show, he could not sustain it with little faith or doubting faith. Finally, the third point. Even in the difficulties of a raging storm in your life, Jesus will never let you drown. Jesus will never let you drown. The text said, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said to Peter, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, watch this, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. The thing I'll say here, which we can all agree to, is that you and I, we are not intended or designed to walk on water. Fish swim in the sea. We walk on land. We were not built or designed to walk on water. And if we try, we find ourselves way in deep over our heads and unable to save ourselves. Furthermore, Peter brought this on himself, but had the common sense to cry out to the only one that could save him. He did not cry out to the disciples. He, he, he did not swim, even though we know he's a fisherman and he probably could swim well. He did not just give up and then let himself drown into depression. He cried out, Lord, save me. And the thing I love about this passage is that even though we may be out of order with God, acting like a fool, doing something we've got no business doing, God will still come to our aid when you call him. Just in the same way that Jesus did not stop Peter from getting out of the boat, Jesus also did not stop or allow Peter to drown. It's the same God that when you are in his will or out of his will, Call on his holy name and he will, he will rescue you and he will deliver you. Jesus had told the disciples, you need to go to the other side. So whether or not there was resistance, Jesus would have made it possible for them to get there. In fact, Jesus was on his way to get them to the other side. As I stated before, a boat was one of the earliest symbols for Christianity and the church. And this story indicates when you're surrounded by adversity, safety and salvation are experienced by the church with Jesus 
in the midst. That's why the church is attractive because the wind and the waves are blowing all around the world. But when people find a true house of worship, when they find a place where the spirit of God is, where they find a place where the name of Jesus is exalted for the brief moment that you are in that boat, for the brief moment that you are in that worship experience, for the brief moment that you are in the presence of God, the winds and the waves must cease and they must die down but you need to understand that the boat is not a static symbol the boat is always moving it is getting from place to place and the truth of the matter is is that when you are in the boat you can anticipate storms when you are in the boat you can expect that things are going to come at you to stop you you can expect the evil of the sea and the wind and the waves of the storm to come but Jesus told you to get to the other side Jesus demonstrates that he is Lord of the wind, Lord of the waves, Lord of the water, Lord of the sea. And all of those characteristics of those chaotic elements cannot stop Jesus when he gets in your boat. Here's the thing that I love. Last week I preached about the disciples in the boat and Jesus was sleeping. And Jesus woke up, if you recall, he rebuked the wind and he spoke to the sea and there was calm. But the interesting thing in this text is that he neither spoke to the wind, he neither rebuked it, nor speak to the sea. The text tells us, as soon as he stepped into the boat, the wind and the storms ceased. Jesus doesn't always have to speak. You just have to have his presence. You just need him in your boat. So when you're in a storm, with the wind raging and, and, and the waves pounding and you feel like you are sinking. Know this, the same Lord who stills the storm is also the same Lord who allowed the storm. So that Lord has a plan for even the storms in your life. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and plans to give you a future. The disciples were obeying Jesus, when he commanded them to go to the other side, thus this was not a storm to correct their behavior. This was a storm to perfect them, to increase and strengthen their faith. Jesus was saying, I want to test you now. I've been teaching you. I've been with you. And now I want you to exercise your faith to go through the storm. Not bypass it. Not to go around it. Not to avoid it. But to go through it. And if you ask people what faith is, most people will say to you, well, you know, faith is believing even though you don't have evidence. Not true. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequence. That's faith. Obeying in spite of consequence. And even though it means there will be difficulties, obstacles, and challenges, even though it may be brutal and difficult, even though I must struggle, my faith says, yet will I obey. Yet will I follow. I don't care how the storms look. I'm not going to step out of the boat to try to prove that I am somebody important or big. I'm going to stay right where Jesus has me, right in his will. And if the storms come, let it come, because sooner or later, my Jesus will come walking on the water, riding on the waves, 
Come soon, Lord Jesus, for when he comes, all the storms, all the raging, all white supremacy, all of that stuff that seems to be raging all around us, COVID-19, COVID-45, COVID, you name it, whatever the storms are in your life, my Jesus doesn't even have to speak. He just needs to be in my boat. And if he's in my boat, I will make it to the other side. So if he sent you into a storm, my brothers and my sisters, we're praying for you through the storm, knowing that Jesus will come to you in the midst of that storm. And perhaps even when you least expect him. And that is the heart of faith. Obeying in spite of consequence. That's the heart of faith. Not to walk out on water when God didn't ask you to do that, but to obey in spite of consequence. So the question I have for you today, brothers and sisters, wherever you find yourselves in whatever storms there are in your life, do you still doubt? Do you still doubt? For he is walking towards you. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved. <laughs>